0: Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach.
1: I'm Mark Mildren. and I'm in private practice at Eugene, Oregon at the Slocum Center for Orthopaedics.
0: I'm Jesse Wolfsett, an arthroplasty surgeon at Mount Sinai Hospital at the University of Toronto and I'm honored to introduce Dr. Aisha Abdeen, who recently moved to Boston Medical Center as the chief of hip and knee arthroplasty and we're thrilled to have her here to talk about her journey in arthroplasty from Canada to the US, and ask a few questions about some of her research. So thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me, Jesse and Mark. This is an excellent opportunity. So yeah, I'm an arthroplasty surgeon in Boston. I've been living in Boston for the past 14 years. Previously, I was at the Beth Israel Hospital and New England Baptist Hospital for my arthroplasty practice, and it was somewhat of a lateral move. I was approached by Paul Tornetta, who's my new chairman, to come and be the Chief of the Division of Arthroplasty at Boston Medical Center, which is our city's health safety net hospital. So it's an incredible opportunity with a lot of opportunities to fulfill some of my initiatives in quality improvement and research. So that was what prompted the move.
1: Do you mind talking about those quality initiatives?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, it is intertwined with quality assurance and specifically as it pertains to arthroplasty and complex patient populations and a focus on really modifying and addressing modifiable risk factors in our diverse and vulnerable patient populations. So our patients have significant complex medical comorbidities, substance misuse disorders, as well as vulnerable patient populations, such as immigrant and refugee populations, as well as in- incarcerated. And So patients have a whole host of complexities, and so some of the quality initiatives are to really focus on perioperative optimization. And so it's a, a program that actually pre-existed that was established by Dr. Tornetta, as well as uh, one of my other colleagues, Dr. Creevy, and one of our nurse practitioners, Kay Bemis, who devised a whole program for optimizing patients within orthopedics. Orthopedics sort of leads and guides the whole process for perioperative optimization, whether it's coordinating perioperative dental work before total joint arthroplasty, as well as weaning from opioids, smoking cessation. We've brought in a lot of resources within the umbrella of orthopedics to really own the process so that we can have patients optimized but also in a very expedited fashion so that we can get to their case and get them treated
0: how do you get interested in quality improvement you know uh, near and dear to my heart because my academic background is in quality improvement <laughs> and patient safety but there aren't a lot of us orthopedic surgeons out there interested in quality and safety and i mean you're 14 years into practice now so you were probably one of the originals that were interested in in quality improvement how did you get involved in it have you done some special training in it and how should people three-part question how should you know young orthopedic surgeons that want to get involved in quality improvement what's a good way for them to get involved
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So I became involved in quality improvement in orthopedics in 2011 when our quality director within orthopedics stepped down and asked me to take over as the quality director for orthopedic surgery. And at the Beth Israel Hospital, they have a very robust system for quality improvement that is multidisciplinary, it's led by the VP of Quality Assurance for the whole hospital, and we have monthly meetings with all of the QI directors for the subdivisions, whether it's internal medicine, general surgery, neurosurgery, and we would all meet and review the complications and near misses and a very strategic way of going through our quality. There was a platform that they had, the RL system, which is a a software that they use to collate all of the complications and problems and near misses. And we would, you know, use very strategic quality improvement metrics using sort of assessments for risk and uh, how to mitigate that and to come full circle to create a plan of how to prevent it and, and create systems in process rather than sort of the blame game and finding one person that caused this uh, complication, but rather are there holes in the system that we can address either with IT guidance or with the collaborative efforts to basically improve processes. and and prevent complications in future
0: since you got involved in quality have you gone and done some training and what sort of resources would you suggest for people that perhaps are maybe at a smaller center and don't have those resources like you know a, a, a vp of quality that's really interested in it and supporting everything that you do
2: Yeah, well certainly within the hospital we were provided with training for all of the QI directors and it's now become intrinsic to most residency programs to have a component of mandatory quality assurance. In terms of an excellent resource for any orthopedic surgeon looking to implement quality improvement metrics in their practice, I would recommend a recent publication, a textbook entitled Quality Improvement and Patient Safety in Orthopedic Surgery. It was edited by Julie Belk-Samora and Kevin Shea and really is a comprehensive overview of the fundamentals of quality improvement principles, very inclusive of multiple concepts, including incorporating quality improvement methods in the electronic medical record, reducing surgical site infection, and creating preoperative optimization checklists, as well as performance measures. I wrote a chapter on the Modern Orthopedic Morbidity and Mortality Conference and how to use it as an instrument for education and system-wide quality improvement. I highly recommend this book. It's got a whole host of experts that have written chapters, and it really is a terrific overview for any orthopedic surgeon looking to use quality improvement and learn about these concepts.
1: How did you get primary care? How did you get other service buy-in to this idea that these medically complex patients need to have things that are taken care of before surgery?
2: It's interesting. There was a lot of sort of instantaneous buy in, particularly from primary care, because many of the things we are trying to optimize before total joints, as you all know, with respect to glycemic control and diabetics, with respect to smoking cessation, are things that the primary care are working on. And it's almost as though the total joint is a carrot for the patients to be inspired to try and make these changes in their general health. And most of them tend to perpetuate post operatively, right? If someone quits smoking perioperatively, usually will continue on for the most part indefinitely. That's something we're trying to measure now, whether our methods of smoking cessation are actually long-term and sustainable, and to look at that in the long-term one, two, and five years after total joint, for instance. Sure. But buy-in was relatively easy in that, in that regard.
1: Do you want to talk about the, the move? Sure. Do you mind just talking about why, how it's been, good parts, bad parts?
2: Absolutely. So, you know, there's a certain amount of stigma about leaving Harvard. Everyone always asks me, you're you're leaving Harvard, how could you possibly do that? It seems like something that would, you know, really disappoint someone's mother, right? But but in the end, it was a a very good move. I'm I'm moving from one, you know, prestigious institution to another uh, phenomenal institution of BU. And it's been a great move for me academically, as I've mentioned, from the the quality and research initiatives as well. And so it it was a lateral move. I was the chief of the division of arthroplasty at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center of a similar sized small arthroplasty program. And in coming in as a new person being recruited, it did come with a lot of additional resources for the quality initiatives that I wanted to accomplish as well as the research. We have a very robust residency program at Boston University. I was very excited that we also have a fellowship and it's really been wonderful to train sort of the the spectrum uh, of trainees from medical students on up to having a fellow, uh, which has really been terrific. As I've mentioned in the setting of the uh, Health Safety Net Hospital, you know we really are the last stop for patients that have no other sort of resources and as such you know we see a wide range of pathology um, revisions that are very complex multiple operated patients that really have nowhere else to go and so you know it's great that we're able to give high quality care in the setting of such complex problems.
0: Yeah I'm sure that's really rewarding.
2: It is. And and what also has been a benefit at Boston Medical Center is that the resources exist for the support. So, you know, secure housing can be a problem for many of our patients, but we have the resources to be able to, you know, not solve every problem, but be able to at least support patients in the perioperative period and to to have them have stable housing, potentially moving forward sort of indefinitely after that. Likewise with substance abuse perioperatively as well. So the resources exist and everyone's very collaborative. And I found that to be a very positive aspect of my practice.
0: So, I've got to ask a burning question. You're born in Newfoundland, you've moved west, Montreal, Hamilton, Calgary, then out to California, and you stayed in the U.S. Why did you leave Canada?
2: That's an interesting question. So, that was actually not in the plans. Uh, as you've mentioned, I was born and raised in Newfoundland. I gradually moved my way westward. My residency was in Calgary, then I moved to Los Angeles. And I did my fellowship in Los Angeles at USC, then moved to Manhattan actually, and did a, a fellowship in orthopedic oncology for two years. And during that research year, I, I met my husband, who was living in New York at the time and is not in medicine. He actually is a, a bond trader. We ultimately, for jobs that you know, were reasonable for, for both of us, and it came down to f- just in terms of my degree of specialization and his field that it needed to be a, a larger, more cosmopolitan city. And so Boston was where we settled, and we've been there ever since. We're both very happy with uh, our professions, and our three kids have been born in Boston, and so that became our new home. But I I do miss Canada.
1: I was curious what that was about, too. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We're keeping that in. (laughs) Uh, Do you mind talking about your smartphone app?
2: Absolutely. So this was an interesting project that um, I did with my colleagues at Beth Israel, looking at the implications of a smartphone app on patient compliance. So it really is important, as we all know, for educating patients around Total joint arthroplasty and why we do what we do, right? For instance, can we improve compliance with the chlorhexidine showers preoperatively? And can we improve compliance with going to the dentist, smoking, all of these aspects? And this particular study looked at compliance with chlorhexidine showers, to specifically to see if that would be improved by reminders leading up to surgery, as well as a perioperative hydration drink. And so we were experiencing, prior to the study, a, a lot of slightly prolonged admission due to hypotension. And the thought was, well, can we preoperatively hydrate in keeping with what is very commonly a part of an ERAS program, Enhanced Recovery After Surgery? And so many programs have already introduced this, but we thought, well, can we improve compliance by having someone's smartphone send them reminders? And so what we did, in fact, find was that it did improve compliance in aggregate with these metrics, but it's difficult to measure. So what was our final measure as to whether or not the patients were truly compliant was simply what they reported to the nurse. And so that was one of the limitations of the study. I think there's a lot more work to be done on the use of smart apps as well as wearable devices in terms of compliance, both in the preoperative period with the things that we measured, as well as potentially postoperative physical therapy regimens and various other other protocols. I think there's a huge variety, but one of the limitations can be, of course, access. And that's one of the things I'm finding at this stage. The majority of people actually have cell phones, regardless of, of socioeconomic status. It's very widespread and ubiquitous. However, to ensure that people are able to use them and have the support whether it's from family members, to be able to use their devices and get the information. I
1: was just going to ask compliance as far as, you know, a, a lot of the patients that we operate on are older and some of them, you know, the eyesight's not great. And so having them install an app, use an app can be somewhat problematic. Is that something you ran into with this study? Yes,
2: exactly right. And so what we found we needed was to have internal support and we recruited our nurse navigator as one of the tasks they would do would be to help the patient download the app and to engage a family member. So you can actually have a, a third-party so that the third party is also receiving the notifications and reminders alongside the patient.
0: That's really helpful. I'm sure on a similar note like English not being a first language for some patients may make it a little bit difficult and perhaps maybe not as usable.
2: Again, one of the quality initiatives that I have is is really to focus on patient literacy and education, and that's something that is really a challenge in practice in my current setting. And so more than 30% of my patients don't speak English, and it's a variety of languages. And so we are addressing this by having to speak to your point about older patients not necessarily having access to digital modalities would be uh, paper format as well as online as well as uh, smartphone applications translated in a multitude of different languages according to the spectrum of languages that we service and my hope is that this does improve patient engagement and as a result outcomes by way of improving compliance.
1: Do you see this changing in the future whereas our aging population gets more tech savvy where they will be able to engage in a app on a regular basis?
2: Certainly I anticipate that would be the case and I think we're in this transition zone where we still have the the patients that that are are not quite as savvy and comfortable using these devices and we don't want to eliminate people's options of getting the information. And that's why I think we need to be able to provide it in multiple media, if you will, so that they can have access.
0: I think one of the big things in the literature out there around the use of apps is that the engagement and, and subsequently the patient activation tends to taper off quite a lot after patients are discharged. So, you know, I think similar to what you said, when you have a nurse navigator and they're an inpatient and, and they're, you're encouraging them to go on the app and use it, It's helpful, but then you sort of release them into the wild back. You discharge them, release them out, and then it it falls off and unfortunately I think sometimes we we have a little bit of experience with an app as well at our institution and I find that, you know, people are still reverting back to the same things where they have, you know, a questionable wound and they end up in the eMERGE rather than using the app to actually interact with us and, and take a picture and send it in securely. So finding a way to keep the patients engaged with the app, I think, is going to be really critical.
2: And I think ultimately we still need the human touch, and I think that's why these programs will fail unless they're supported with someone such as a nurse navigator or personnel to be able to be that liaison between the technology and the surgeon. I do foresee that eventually we can reduce our unnecessary readmissions to the emergency department by being able to have these apps that can shoot a photo and send it to the providers that we can sort of deal with things in advance. Of becoming you know catastrophes.
0: Absolutely. Maybe we'll just switch gears and you were a co-author on a recent paper looking at the m- normal microbiome of patients that undergo total joint replacement and, and perhaps the theory that some of what we do to them may actually alter the normal microbiome and put them at a higher risk of infection. Specifically in that paper you, you talk a little bit about the use of probiotics to mitigate some of the risks of infection. Is that something that's a regular part of practice for you and your colleagues at at BMC? And and where do you see the future of of probiotics as it may relate to reducing SSI and PGI and, and joint replacement?
2: Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think it's a very exciting area of research. We don't have enough data to start implementing pathways because there are some significant unknowns, specifically what is the best probiotic, how should it be administered, and the dosing. But what's promising is that there's a great deal of data in other subspecialties, specifically colorectal surgery, that definitively shows a a reduction in infections while maintaining sort of a more normal microbiome. This concept that there are billions of organisms commensurate in our systems, in the GI tract or a pharynx, that potentially can help fight infections. And so there are a concept of good bacteria, right? So as orthopedic surgeons and arthroplasty surgeons specifically, we abhor bacteria, but there may be some bacteria bacteria that actually are helpful. And by killing off too many bacteria with the whole host of antibiotics that we use, we might be sort of circumventing some of the body's natural ability to fight infections. And I think one of the reasons this is also intriguing is that we know that despite mitigating modifiable risk factors, there are some patients that simply get an infection despite having no risk factor for it. There are other patients that no matter what we do surgically, that the infections can be recurrent and terribly recalcitrant to uh, antimicrobial. And the thought there being, is is there a role in some of these you know, very aggressive recurrent infections for um, options such as probiotics? But I think there needs to be more prospective data. There are data with respect to mouse models and infections and bone infections and, and the use of probiotics, but more of a clinical model and to really hone in on what the appropriate dosing, duration of treatment, and who we should be targeting.
1: So a little bit of a crystal ball question, but where do you see us managing the microbiome in 10 years? Are we going to be doing DNA testing so that you can have the optimal antibiotic without affecting your microbiome? Are we going to be doing specific, maybe probiotics before surgery? Where do you see this going?
2: You know, I see this going in a realm where when we can identify people that would be at slightly higher risk that we form a strategy for prevention in those patients. One such potential is the group of patients that are allergic to cephalosporins and we might be putting at risk by not, you know, providing ANSIF perioperatively, those patients may benefit from a boost in their microbiome and, and, and supplemental probiotics, for instance, and then the recalcitrant infections. But it's difficult to really identify which patients would be in need of it up front. And I think that's where we need that crystal ball and, and sort out how we stratify for risk.
1: And then they can get the notifications to take
0: their probiotics in their app. <laughs> exactly yeah. right.
2: It comes full circle. I like what you did there. <laughs> I like what
0: you did there, Mark. Wondering if you could chat a little bit about your fellowship experience at USC. I know I think Kelly Vince was there at the time and he I think has written some of the textbooks, particularly around revision knee replacement, and, and I quote him often when teaching our trainees. Have any fun experiences? What did you learn from him that you still teach your fellows and your residents?
2: Yeah, my, my time at USC was terrific. I had a, an excellent fellowship experience. I was with Kelly Vince as well as Dan Oaks and Don Longjohn. And, and Kelly, you know, he is a, a brilliant surgeon. He's got significant, you know, gravitas and charisma, and he, just the way he interacts with patients and the team is just something that is really inspiring to be around. But I, I learned a great deal from Kelly, and, and things that I still do today are predicated on his teachings and fundamentals. One of the things that always resonates with me is how he said that a total knee replacement should look like a well choreographed dance, right? So, removing all these extraneous movements and, and an economy of steps, and it really gets honed in onto the efficiency. One of our first conferences, he got up at the whiteboard and he made a grid, good, bad, fast, and slow. He said, you can be a good fast surgeon, you could be a bad slow surgeon, but you cannot be a good slow surgeon. So really honing in on efficiencies and how it pertains to infections and problems that you encounter. And so the second thing that I learned from him is sort of this three-step approach to the revisions, which, you know, he he talks about about today. And and it is the fundamentals of how I do a revision arthroplasty, starting with your tibial base cut and balancing inflection and then balancing ascension. If you stick by these principles that he describes much more eloquently than, than I, it really will prove uh, beneficial for all revision cases, it really sticking to the principles of alignment. I remember he had this lecture where he would play Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do With It? And then he'd have someone stand up and say, nothing, it's all about alignment. So, <laughs> you know, this sort of, uh, you know, it's just a funny little catchphrase, but I'll, I'll take it through every revision operation to stick to the principles of alignment and the operation will go well. So that's the main take home from that. And the other one as it pertains to revision surgery is is his paper on, you know, why knees fail. And it says there is no role for exploratory surgery. So unless you have a diagnosis, always find your diagnosis beforehand and have a plan of what you're going to fix, right? But the fellowship was very enriching in many ways. Dan Oakes had trained at Mayo Clinic, and Don Longjohn trained with Larry Doerr, and with uh, Kelly Vince's experience from InSol, I really feel like I had this crossroads of legacy training, you know, from the three of them. So it was a phenomenal fellowship, and I bring things that I've learned from all three of them into my practice on a daily basis.
0: So I gotta ask the question then, how do you do your knees? Are you still a ISK trainee, you know, the total condylar knee? perfect rectangular gaps?
2: So those are the fundamentals that I still use. I know that, and my feeling is that the way the technology is advancing as we apply robotics and we apply newer concepts such as the medial pivot, that there are ways of tailoring different technologies and approaches to each patient. So it's not a one size fits all, but those are still the fundamentals that I, I rely on for the vast majority of cases.
0: Awesome. Well, this was great chatting with you. It was very, very nice to meet you. Uh, Thank you to Dr.
1: Abdeen for coming and talking to us. Uh, You will all be getting notifications on your phone to drink your water, take a chlorhexidine shower, and take your probiotics later tonight.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much.
2: Fabulous.
0: This is a lot of fun. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for ACUS Amplified. Visit ACUS.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.